Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by Indiana University Press. Their The Life of the Past series is lavishly illustrated and meticulously documented to showcase the latest findings and most compelling interpretations in the ever-changing field of paleontology. Find their books at iupress.indiana.edu. In our 221st episode, we have an interview with Eric from the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, which we did a dig at, so it's pretty exciting, and it's actually a follow-up on some of the bones or eggshell pieces that Sabrina dug up while we were there, which is pretty awesome. We also have a bunch of dinosaur news, including two new dinosaurs, and there have been many more than two. I think there maybe have been six named in like the last week or two. Strong start to the year. It's too much, man. (laughs) So (laughs) I can only read thoroughly so many journal articles per episode. And, you know, we don't want the episodes to be like three hours long. So we're only doing two today, but there will be more new dinosaurs coming. So likely we have already started working on them. And then we also have Dinosaur of the Day Dromesiomimus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons who keep the podcast running and the bits streaming. And this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalin, Ayumi, Paul Acanthus, Lydia, Kentish, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, and Mayu, and Sorian Brandy and Mayu both just joined. And with that, we are up to 109 patrons, Woo! which means we are one away from our next goal of 110, where I'm going to have to do some work. So <laughs> <laughs> pressure's on. It really is. So if you want to help us reach that goal of making a new noise absorption panel and hanging up some sound curtain to prevent some noise reflections where we record our videos, then we would really appreciate that. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first article is written by Min Wang and Zhonghee Zhao and published in the Journal of Systematic Paleontology. And it's a new enantiornithine from China. We talk about these a lot. This one actually isn't as recent as the other dinosaurs I was talking about. It's actually from a couple weeks ago. And there wasn't really any news on it. And I think that's because enantiornithines from China are so common. (laughs) And then also sometimes Chinese discoveries sort of slip under the radar here in the US. But as a reminder, enantiornithines are small toothy dinosaur bird hybrids, sort of is how I think about them. But they did go extinct at the KPG boundary. So there aren't any modern descendants of enantiornithines. They're sort of this special type of dinosaur bird that existed in the Mesozoic, but then went extinct. This one is named Shangyang gracilis, and Shangyang refers to a Chinese mythological bird, also known as the rain bird. Hmm. And gracilis is Latin for slender. A slender rain bird. Yes. <laughs> I mean, pretty much all of these enantiornithines are slender, so you could probably tack that on most of them. I'm not sure why, though, they chose Rainbird. It's not mentioned anywhere in the text that I could find anything about rain or any of the elements of the story where the Rainbird comes from. So I I really don't know why they picked it, but I'm going to go into the story because I think it's interesting. According to Chinese legends, there's this bird named Shangyang, which could predict the rain. 
So there you go. That's the rainbird. And it did so by doing a one-legged dance at a royal court. And so what happened was it did this dance and then people didn't know what to make of it. So they asked Confucius and he said, well, it's doing this dance because it's going to rain and there's going to be a really big storm. So we need to prepare for it and do all this stuff so our city doesn't get completely flooded and destroyed. And so some areas did. They dug extra drainage in preparation and thus were spared from the flooding. Hooray, magic bird. But others did not do this and suffered really heavy losses. So it's kind of used as a parable, as a lesson to listen to advice from the wise. And also birds. Yeah, <laughs> pay attention to how birds dance. But apparently some scholars argue this warning dance shouldn't be attributed to Shangyang, but instead to a similar one-legged bird, mm. not just a bird doing one-legged dance, named Bifong. So maybe it should be called Bifong gracilis. I don't know. I didn't know there were birds that only had one leg. Apparently there's a whole bunch of like legendary Chinese birds. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe they'll pop up in some more of these dinosaur names, or maybe they already have. I don't know. So why it's named after the rain bird, like I said, I couldn't find anything. It's only distantly related to Confucius Ornus and very distantly. But I was thinking maybe that would be the link because, you know, Confucius was involved in the legend, but that's not the case. Like most in Antiornithines, Shangyang was found in Liaoning province in northeast China. But that's pretty far from the ancient city Qi, where the rainbird legend is from. So that's not it either. And then Shangyang has both of its legs preserved. So that's not the name for it either, even though that would probably be Bifong if that was the name. And it could be that it looks like it's dancing. I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's not mentioned by the authors, but it kind of has its legs down below it. And then its wings are sort of folded and like up, sort of like walking like an Egyptian or something. Like the Bengals dance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But my best guess is really that there are so many enantiornithines that they're just kind of grasping at straws for any sort of significant Chinese birds to name things after. Like most enantiornithines, it's very small. Pretty much the entire animal is preserved as usual too. And the slab that the entire animal is in is from the bottom of its foot claws to the top of its skull, about eight by 16 centimeters or three by six inches in area. So it's not quite small enough to fit in the palm of your hand, but probably if you have your hand facing upward, it could fit on like the palm plus your fingers and thumb. You could kind of hold it maybe like a postcard size, pretty small animal. And why it got a unique name is because it has a couple interesting features that are unique to it. The main one is that it has a fused premaxillae, which is kind of the tip of the snout. And usually you see that in later enantiornithines. This one is from the early Cretaceous. So it's seen as like a sort of more derived quote unquote characteristic for a dinosaur of that age. And that alone wouldn't be too impressive since to me, bones can fuse with age, so it could just be like an older individual. But they also found some other unique features in bone shapes and sizes relative to other enantiornithines, so they think it's significant enough to warrant a new name. Pretty interesting name, too. Mm -hmm. And our other new dinosaur of the day comes courtesy of Eric Gorsick and Patrick O'Connor in PLOS One. And thanks to Morgan for sharing this one with us on Discord. It's another sauropod from Tanzania. Two weeks ago, we talked all about the high diversity of sauropods that are in southern Tanzania and how really it's a great snapshot, sort of the whole 
sauropod diversity in the area because it's not just like titanosaurs or one subgroup like we find in a lot of places. And we have another one in the news today. So this one is named Mnyamawamtuka Mmoyawamkia, which is really hard to say. So the genus name Mnyamawamtuka comes from a few Kiswahili words, which is the local language. And the second half is because it's from the Mtuka member of the Galula formation, which is a different formation than most sauropods in southern Tanzania come from. And Mnyama comes from animal or beast, and it's intended to be sort of the same origin as the Titano beginning of a sauropod. So you can tell it's a Titanosaur, but they didn't want to use Titano because that's just kind of a Latin word. So they figured they'd use a Kiswahili word and make it hard for everybody. <laughs> not everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not everybody. Easier for the local people, but harder for most other people. And it's, it is nice though, because it sort of honors the local group and sort of brings some attention to where it's from. And then the Mooyo Wamkia also comes from a few Kiswahili words. That's the species name, right? Yes. So Mooyo is for heart and Wamkia is for of the tail because the tail vertebrae are a little bit more heart-shaped than some of its close relatives. So there you go. There's the whole name. It got through it and the meaning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the headlines really played up the heart-shaped thing because it was released around Valentine's Day. So it's like, oh, this sauropod has heart-shaped tails. But really it's like... The vertebrae. Yeah, it's the vertebrae. You wouldn't have been able to see it from the outside of the tail. Right. And it's only slightly more heart-shaped than... Like if you look at a comparison, they have a picture of three vertebrae of it with some of its close relatives. They all look pretty similar. Unless untrained eye. you saw it in life and there were two of them and they had flexible tails and they shaped them into a heart. Yes, that I guess could happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason to think that this titanosaur would have done it more often than another titanosaur. No, but you never know. Yeah, there is some art that was done by Mark Witten, which is really nice. And it's sort of heart shaped. It's more like the shape of the actual vertebra that it's named after. And when you look at it, you're like... The first thought isn't, oh, that's heart-shaped. They found a lot of the animal, including semi-spatulate teeth, a lot of the front and hind limbs, lots of the vertebrae from all over the body, not just the tail, also the back and the neck. They also found a big old scapula because sauropods just have these massive shoulder blades, some of the ribs and some other pieces from here and there. Some of them weren't even identifiable. Even though they didn't find the skull, and they didn't find a lot of the bones from around the body. It is, quote, one of the most complete early titanosaurian sauropod skeletons known with elements representing dental and all major regions of the postcranial skeleton, end quote. So still a pretty awesome find. It's a close-ish, I say, relative to Malawisaurus. And the main reason I say close-ish is because there's some pretty big error bars on its age, they can't say much more than that it was from the middle of the Cretaceous, which is somewhere in the 121 to 96 million years ago range, about for this find. And Malawisaurus was somewhere in the 126 to 113 million years ago range. So they could have been around at the exact same time, or they could have been around as much as 30 million years apart, depending on where exactly they fit in the spectrum. <laughs> so we really need some more sedimentology kind of work in the area to date these rocks. Yep, that's pretty big range. Yeah. 
And like I said, there are some more new dinosaurs, but next week. <laughs> it's too many. <laughs> There's time. <laughs> Just figuring out how to say that name took me quite a while. Next, we've got a quick update on an item that's related to the dueling dinosaurs, tangentially, I'd say. So just a quick recap, there's a legal battle over the ownership of the fossils that were found on a Montana ranch. And back in November, the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the dinosaur fossils are made of minerals, that they're part of the property's mineral estate, which is partially owned by Jerry and Bo Severson, and not Marianne and Liege Murray, who own the surface area and a small portion of the minerals. So the Murrays are asking for an appeal, but in the meantime, because of this ruling, and I want to thank Corey Coverdale from Two Medicine Dinosaurs for clarifying all this for us, there's new legislation in Montana that was introduced to clarify that fossils are part of a property surface rights, not the mineral rights. And people in favor of the bill say, quote, claims by mineral rights holders could jeopardize previous sales and future scientific research, end quote. And the legislation won't actually affect the dueling dinosaurs case. We'll update you more as we hear about it. But they're all tangentially related. That's really interesting. Yeah. I suppose maybe that's because property owners that, you know, typically wouldn't be doing anything in terms of like oil and gas extraction might sell the mineral rights to a big company, but maintain the surface rights so that they could do things like farming or ranching. Mm -hmm. And I could see how it would be easier to work with those individuals than it might be to work with large companies who are doing oil and gas extraction they might slow things down a little bit in terms of getting the fossils out. Next, we've got an update on the National Museum in Brazil, which burned down last year. They opened to the press recently. It's not yet open to the public, but hey, things are moving along. So there's a lot of scaffolding. Teams are now removing debris. They're looking for items. They're able to access all the rooms, but there's still a lot of debris. And so far, they've registered 2,000 items, and they're going to be in the rescue phase till the end of this year. And then there's works to enforce the building that are scheduled to be done by the end of March. They're hoping they can recover more items from their collection of vertebrate paleontology than they previously thought, maybe up to 5,000 items, maybe more. And soon there's going to be an exhibition with the rescued items, but there's no dates on that yet. Yeah, hopefully... I kind of wonder how that works out because a lot of the fossils are made out of rock, obviously. I mean, there's a fair amount of resin in them too, but it doesn't seem like they'd be very flammable. So unless they got crushed, which a lot of them are kind of fragile, you'd think you would be able to kind of dig them out. It just all depends. And the way the fire spread, it's so unpredictable because they found a bathroom that was completely untouched. Even the toilet paper was hmm. not burned at all. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it depends on what landed on what, I suppose, mm -hmm. to determine what got crushed. In Kansas, Fort Hayes State University's Sternberg Museum of Natural History has opened its new Oceans of Kansas Fossil Prep Lab. Visitors can talk to scientists there and students who work there. So basically, there's more public outreach, more opportunities for people to learn about fossils. And in Dayton, Ohio, Boonshoff Museum of Discovery has a dinosaur discovery exhibit up from now through April. The exhibit is on loan from the Virginia Museum of Natural History. And on weekends, if you go and visit, you can see Mackenzie English, who's Boonshoff's paleontologist, prepare a dinosaur fossil and ask him any questions. Nice. Yeah. And last, the BBC has a new film called My Pet Dinosaur. And the film, it goes over a lot of the basics of dinosaurs. It interviews a lot of scientists. And they talk about cool finds, especially the Red Gulch trackway in Wyoming, which may show gregarious behavior of theropods. There's also a twist. You might be able to tell by the name. The film is reimagining the world where humans 
live alongside non-avian <laughs> dinosaurs. And so there's scenes of a family eating dinner with a small dinosaur on a leash under the table begging for scraps. There's a clip that's like a BBC News clip. There's a bunch of raptors destroying some garbage cans and then they run to a car and then a newsman saying that people are unhappy because of property damage. Mm. <laughs> but like it or not, these dinosaurs are here to stay. They also talk about how smart dinosaurs were at the end of the Cretaceous, especially Trudon, and whether if it hadn't gotten extinct, it would have evolved and maybe changed to look like a humanoid called a dinosauroid. Oh, they're taking the Jurassic Park 4 approach. <laughs> that was one of the things, yeah. I mean, the film was less than an hour, so not too much time devoted to it. But they did have this dinosauroid in some scenes, uh, walking around the city, reading a newspaper, getting coffee at a coffee shop <laughs> while there was in the background while they're talking to a paleontologist. <laughs> oh, man. And then it ends with how the, quote, age of dinosaurs never actually ended, in quote, because of birds as we know. So, you know, technically we do live alongside dinosaurs. Some of us do have pet dinosaurs, like <laughs> parrots. They're very smart. And the film actually ends with a shot of a parrot. I think they say something like clever girl and then go to credits, something like that. So we'll share a link to the video. It's about 50 minutes long. It's pretty entertaining and a lot of great scientists in there. Can you get it even if you're outside of the BBC? Yeah, I was able to watch it. I don't know how long the link will last. Sometimes they take it down, but Oh, gotcha. It's like on YouTube or something? No, it was on a news site and they oh. had it embedded. And Interesting. I thought it was going to be a short clip, maybe a trailer, <laughs> but it was the whole thing. <laughs> so you bit off more than you expected to chew. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Before we get into our dinosaur of the day, we have a word from our sponsor, Indiana University Press. As Garrett mentioned at the beginning of the show, they have a Life of the Past series with some really great illustrations and the books showcase the latest findings and interpretations in the field of paleontology. So I want to highlight a specific book, Dinosaur Tracks, which we've mentioned before, but, you know, it's about dinosaurs, so... Yeah, who doesn't want to read about dinosaur tracks or see pictures of them? <laughs> exactly. So we're mentioning it again. It's called Dinosaur Tracks, The Next Steps. And the description reads, The latest advances in dinosaur ecology are showcased in this comprehensive and timely volume in which leading researchers and research groups cover the most essential topics in the study of dinosaur tracks. Some assess and demonstrate state-of-the-art approaches and techniques, such as experimental ecology, photogrammetry, biplanar x-rays, and a numerical scale for quantifying the quality of track preservation. The high diversity of these up-to-date studies underlines that dinosaur ichnological research is a vibrant field, that important discoveries are continuously made, and that new methods are being developed, applied, and refined. This indispensable volume unequivocally demonstrates that ichnology has an important contribution to make toward a better understanding of dinosaur paleobiology. Tracks and trackways are one of the best sources of evidence to understand and reconstruct the daily life of dinosaurs. They are windows on past lives, dynamic structures produced by living, breathing, moving animals now long extinct, and they're every bit as exciting and captivating as the skeletons of their makers. <laughs> Written like a true ichnologist. Yeah, but ichnology <laughs> is cool and definitely it doesn't is. get as much credit as I think it deserves. Yeah, for sure. Like we've talked about some of the amazing tracks where you can see dinosaurs starting to swim or really most of our evidence for how dinosaurs interacted with each other outside of like tooth marks, which is a type of ichnology, is like these track marks because you can see groups of dinosaurs moving together sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating. Right. That's how you can hypothesize that some were gregarious. Yep. 
And it's also what you use to figure out how fast they moved. You can't tell that just by looking at bones. You have to have the sort of stride lengths incorporated into your math. Mm -hmm. So if you want to buy that book or any of the other books in the Life of the Past series, go to the Indiana University Press website at iupress.indiana.edu. And now we're going to move on to our interview with Eric. But if you're a patron, remember that we pretty much always <laughs> have a longer interview than we can fit in the show. So we have an unabridged version for our patrons in the premium content feed. So you might want to listen to that if you are a patron. But here is our interview. We're here today with Eric C.B. Shevsky, who is a student at Montana State University and a researcher at Two Medicine Dinosaur Center in Bynum, Montana, and he is the lead author of the team that's working on a newly found nesting site in Montana. Yes, yes. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about the nesting site, you know, what's been found so far, how it was found, mm -hmm, all, all mm -hmm. the good details? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I've been working on this site actively since 2016. And one of the neat things about at least the two medicine is that we have an abundance of egg material there compared to most formations. So obviously there's all the work that's been done with Myosaur and Troodon in particular from that formation itself. And looking at the amount of eggs there compared to most formations, it, it's absolutely incredible. So we're like the Hell Creek. If we find a single fragment of eggshell, that itself is a huge find. We're in the two med we have eggshell fragments all over the place, generally speaking. But at this site, what we've actually found so far are 14 partial eggs that we've prepped. And I know we have many more in the ground, uh, which makes it absolutely incredible. It's upper two med, and we have a preliminary dating so far of about 74 million years, hmm. which makes it also very interesting because that's basically the very top of the two medicine, uh, which generally speaking, some of the data right now from that area is lacking, at least in terms of egg material. So the site itself with these eggs, they're actually pretty large. They're all compressed though, but some of them get in excess of about 110 millimeters across. So they're, they're pretty large eggs, generally speaking, and oh, yeah. laterally compressed, which also can make it a little hard to try and reconstruct them. Mm -hmm. For myself, at least, one of the very interesting parts with the eggs is we've got almost two aspects going on with them that they ha basically look almost hadrosaur-like in the overall shape, the overall dimensions, and the basic size. But when we actually look at the thin sections, which are basically our petrographic thin sections, and we look at some of the mineralogy there, they actually look somewhat theropod-like. Hmm. So it's, yes, it's, it's given us a bit of a quandary as far as who they might actually be from. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, and one of the nice things, with at least egg material, is you don't necessarily actually try to identify it to a dinosaur. You try and identify it to what's already known. And we use sort of a parataxon, same thing you see also with ignofossils and your traces. So we actually classify eggs based on that. So not so much trying to link it specifically with dinosaur for every new egg or every new type of eggshell, but trying to give it what's called an eugenius or eutaxon. So that's one of the big projects right now is trying to actually figure out where these would fit with the known eggshell so far. And they're presenting a bit of a challenge in doing that. <laughs> when you're doing that kind of work, do you look to similar aged eggshells first, or do you look for a similar, like if you're assuming it's a hadrosaur, do you look for like other hadrosaur eggs and try to compare that way? Well, in, initially, just to save time, 
you try and compare it to what it'd be closest to. Uh And at first appearance, that was our guess is that it was Hadrosaur. But right now, I'm not even going to begin to try and speculate on what it might be. I have a few rough hypotheses, but right now, based on what we're seeing, it, it, it'd be very speculative to try and go forward and say who what it might actually be from. So what I'm trying to do is focus on just what we have and try and work on a description. Because the other problem in the past, at least with the field, has always been people trying to jump the gun, get a little bit ahead of themselves, <laughs> and say things that aren't necessarily supported. So trying to be very conservative and cautious and you know try to learn from the mistakes of the past. And actually, as we're doing this, only say what we truly can substantiate right here and now based on the data. Gotcha. Yeah, it may be worked out later on down the road, but it's imperative that we actually try and not make any more mistakes going forward. Interesting. What's your closest analog so far that you've found? Believe it or not, it's eggs from an unpublished master's thesis from Egg Mountain proper. Oh, okay. Yeah, so really close then. Mm -hmm. Those are so far the closest that we have. Those are not perfect, but they seem to be close. Uh, One of the interesting things is that they do show the same type of what appears to be a very heavy amount of diagenetic alteration. That's the other reason why I'm trying to be very cautious with this, is they're heavily altered in taphonomic terms. Hmm. So when we're looking at them, it makes me question how much of what we're seeing is the actual original and natural state of the eggshell. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, trying to differentiate what was actually originally deposited as the eggshell by the female versus what are we looking at now after it's been altered, after it's been fossilized, and so forth. Do you have any clues about what was at Egg Mountain? That's all Myasaura, right? No, no. From there, there's there's several egg types that we found. Oh. You have Myasaura. That's certainly a bulk of it. We have Troodon as well, and in particular, Troodon Formosus egg shell there. And then there's a couple others, and there's one that's very abundant, but it hasn't been identified, which has almost like a bumpy texture. And that is yet to be identified uh, just because, again, one of the only ways to scientifically properly link eggshell is to actually find the embryonic remains. Oh. Right. And without embryonic remains, you cannot actually link it scientifically. So the bulk of egg types that we have, you can't make anything from that. Interesting. So even if you find it like underneath a dinosaur, you don't assume that that's the parent because it might be there for some other reason? In the past, people have made the assumption, and that's why Oviraptor was so grossly mischaracterized as a quick example. Mm-hmm. So, you, you, yeah, so it's, again, trying to avoid some of the mistakes that have occurred in the past. That said, certainly, if you find an adult and you found animals that were, I would say, hatchling size, you could start to make some approximations, assuming they're the same animal. Mm-hmm. But outside that, it, it gets rather speculative. And again, we want, we want to be careful whenever we're trying to piece this back together, because otherwise we invite lots of error, lots of bias. There's, we're already dealing with enough bias between sample bias, preservation bias. So it's all about trying to eliminate any further bias when we can. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then you mentioned before we started recording about how I always say that Troodon is, you know, dubious and we should start calling, you know, talking about other Troodontids, but... There's been some papers recently that do mention Troodon and refer to it as a valid species, which is yes, interesting. Yes, yes. So just this past August, Reiki and others uh, came and had a great paper basically going over looking at Troodon and its brooding characteristics, and that was in scientific reports. 
And they basically, when it comes to the validity, basically said, we've been using Troidon for 30 years. We therefore should continue to use it in place of what was previously proposed. Um, we may, of course, see a debate going on down the road, but at least as of right now, there's certainly those who say it's invalid, those who say it's valid. Uh, I personally consider it to be valid, but we will we'll see what we'll see how it bears out down the road here. Gotcha. That's interesting. Yeah, because there is that exception that gets used sometimes where it's like, well, yeah, it's not the best name that we have, but it's so deep in all the literature and there is some other, you know, technicality where it should be this other name, but because it's been used so much that sometimes they make exceptions. I think mm-hmm. T-Rex was used like that too, wasn't it? Yes. T-Rex is perhaps the best example. And in many ways, T-Rex is what created the <laughs> exception. Uh, but yes, when you actually look at this, Trodon, it's very ingrained in the literature and through what's already been done, it's one of the few animals that we truly understand it from a reproductive aspect. So again, like I talked about, we have one with that looking at its brooding characteristics. We have amazing clutch sizes. We have a basic idea of how the eggs would have set up. There's many papers that have been done looking at Troodon from a reproductive standpoint, looking at its life history, looking at its growth and development. And in many ways, if you try and just make the whole thing invalid, not to say it invalidates all the research, but it complicates trying to understand the research and trying to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always thought that there were just teeth that had been found, but there's also a growth series of Troodon out there? I wouldn't say a true growth series. We don't have a full ontogenetic series with it, but, but there are other elements. So, for example, we have feed and what have you, pretty complete feed, actually, uh, when you start to put together a couple of specimens. And then we have the embryonic remains as well which based on the teeth, you can identify, okay, these are definitely troodontid, mm. and in particular troodon formosus. So when we're looking at trying to piece this all together, because we have an animal that well understood, regardless of what we call it, those fossils still exist. The research has still been done on it. So it, depending on what we want to name it, in many ways, that's the rose by any other name. Yeah, uh, It's just, we've been calling it a rose for so long now, we might as well continue to call it a rose is basically what Varekio argued. Varekio and his colleagues argued. Gotcha. Are its teeth, I know troodontins in general have kind of unique teeth. They have very unique teeth. Yeah. Is Formosus like also different than other troodontids? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, that's handy. Different at least to for sure the species level, probably when you look at the genus level compared to the troodontidae family. Okay. Well, I mean, usually it's like as long as the thing that you named actually has enough unique characteristics about it so that it can't just be confused with something else, then that's usually enough to hold up. It, it is. And in my mind, there's enough apomorphies, those unique traits like you're talking about to consider it valid. And that's why I personally consider it to be valid. Now, admittedly, I may be somewhat biased for APA as my <laughs> advisor, but I, I do agree with his arguments. And that's not to say that the papers that they invalidated were bad or anything. I think actually they were decent pieces of work. The problem is, and it's funny, Trexler said it best that they basically threw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> gotcha. So it, it's yeah, and it's not something you necessarily want to do. It's we certainly need to continue to try and clean up the dinosaur family tree. And right now, clades are obviously quite the mess, uh, especially at the base of the tree. Yeah. But that said, in trying to clean it up, we don't want to just again completely throw out all this research or make things overly complex. Yeah. At yeah. least from the naming perspective. Yeah, because we've already we're already keeping track of like five hundred to a thousand dinosaur genus yeah. names. Yes. And 
exactly exactly <laughs> it's 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 an insane number but no trodon it and t formosus in particular very very unique teeth is trodon formosus primarily from two medicine <laughs> again it depends on who you ask mm-hmm. uh we certainly have a lot of trodon material in the two medicine is it all t formosus maybe i'm not going to say that it all is but we certainly have a great deal of material there but trodontids as a, as a group are found in many many formations cool interesting mm-hmm. well going back to eggs <laughs> yes yes <laughs> you were talking about how there's three different types of eggs in the area. And and I was just wondering, how can you tell if an egg is from a dinosaur versus something Mm -hmm. else? It really depends on what you're looking at. And with eggs, it obviously all comes down to the eggshell. So often people will misidentify a concretion as an egg. Hmm. And that's a big part of the reason why when you're looking at this material, you cannot just use the shape alone. In fact, if you find something that's perfectly egg-shaped, it almost certainly is not going to be an egg because after the yeah after the process of fossilization, it, we they tend to lose their shape. They tend to be become altered, what have you. It's literally an egg trying to go through the process of fossilization, and we know how hard it is for bone, let alone any eggshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so when you look at that, what you're looking for is the eggshell itself. That's the only true indicator you, that you have an egg. Where you find eggshell together, and in a natural state, you can kind of start to see a curvature or something along those lines, that's how you can determine you have an egg. When it comes to differentiating the types of eggs, you can look at the actual mineralogic composition, and you do that through scanned electron microscopes, like I mentioned, thin sections, and you use those to try and look at a good cross-section of the eggshell. So with ours, for example, one of the things that's indicative of it being a theropod is the fact that it seems to have two distinct layers, and that's a very theropod-like trait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can also, when you look at, say, turtle eggs, for example, you have a lot of aragonite versus true calcite. So that'd be one way to differentiate those. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Is there any, I mean, I'm guessing that at the time, like say in the Cretaceous, there probably weren't a lot of other really large animals laying eggs on land. Does just the size of, you know, kind of the curvature and, you know, the representative size then tell you that it's probably a dinosaur? Yeah, no, you can use that as well. And that's one of the reasons why, say, for example, the nest that we're working on here, why I at least knew that we can certainly restrict it to dinosaur is because, again, the size of these eggs. Hmm. Right now, our largest egg across, we have it at about 110 millimeters. Uh, Not the largest we find, but the size alone eliminates everything else because it's very, very unlikely we'd have something that could lay an egg that large that isn't a dinosaur. Yes, that's like a foot Mm -hmm. about... I know it's insane. And then uh, in one of our images, we've got it with a meter stick and the meter stick, you know, with the clutch is almost the length of the entire clutch, which is insane. (laughs) (laughs) So is that partly why at first you were thinking maybe hadrosaur because it's just such a large egg and nest? Yes. So we have with one of them, uh, I talked about a clutch already. So we have nine eggs that are basically together. And the overall spacing is somewhat uniform between them after you do a little bit of reconstruction. So based on that and the spread of it, it's very indicative of hadrosaurs, and that's typically what we see. So we look at some of the lambiosaur eggs, uh, the eggs that were identified to hepacosaur, and then obviously the eggs from myosaura. When we look at those, it's basically what we're seeing with these, just in the gross uh, morphology of the egg and the shape of the nest, and then basically the spacing of the nest and such. But again, these 
These, I don't know if they are actually hadrosaur based on all the other traits. Gotcha. So were the eggs like in pretty, you mentioned the arrangement. Could you actually kind of tell the arrangement? They weren't too smashed up for that? Oh, well, they are smashed up, but we can do a fair amount of reconstruction. And one of the nice things in this day and age is we can use modern technology, in, in particular CT imaging, and that allows us to really see how the eggs have been deformed because we can make a 3D model of it. And from that, we can experiment with certain reconstructions digitally and allow us to basically start truly putting each piece of the eggshell almost back together, if you will. Gotcha. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. No, it's it's wonders of modern science. Yeah. Well, the other really cool thing just about this nesting site in general is Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, you've worked with a lot of volunteers who helped dig up this nest. Mm-hmm. And actually, we got to do that a little bit. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Sabrina actually found some eggshells. I didn't find anything, but Sabrina mm-hmm. found some. Well, <laughs> for whatever reason, I could spot those more easily than the fossils. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it, yeah, no, it, that's for myself, at least one of the other beauties of working with TMDC and why I actually like it there is you're able to interact with the public directly. And for myself, at least so much of what we do in this field is about public relations that we reaching out to people and trying to get people more involved in science as a whole, especially kids and high schoolers. I think that's an imperative. And it's nice to be able to take the public out to the site. And most of the work actually at the site has been done by the public. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, it's phenomenal. And then even though you guys were out there and think, yeah, Sabrina found the one piece that still helps and adds because many of the pieces that we've sampled were found one or two pieces at a time by dig participants. Takes a lot of digging to find all those little eggshells. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that that that's one of the other downsides about eggs. I will admit is as tedious and time consuming and the amount of patience needed for normal fossils, eggs do take that to almost like the second or third power. <laughs> uh, it, it becomes even more tedious, even more time consuming, especially in the field, because again, you're dealing with egg material. While it has been mineralized and it's many ways now very thin rock it still is that same eggshells layer of material. Yeah, I think we're basically just kind of slowly brushing away dirt mm-hmm. and then, you yes. know, a couple millimeters at a time <laughs> looking mm-hmm. for something new. <laughs> and you have to go a couple millimeters at a time. You really do because most of the time the material there, it is just a couple millimeters. On average, for the eggshell that we're working with, it's about 0.6 millimeters thick. <laughs> <laughs> it's thick compared to a chicken egg, but very yes. thin compared to most fossils, that's for sure. No, it, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's very thick compared to your typical egg that you think about, but simultaneously, it's incredibly thin and it makes it <laughs> difficult to work with. Yeah. I think going on that dig too gave me a new appreciation for paleontologists and the work that they do because... I mean, even once you find the piece, I remember there's a lot of documentation involved and a lot mm-hmm. of pictures and make sure you know exactly where that piece was found. And Yeah. And I think Corey told us too, finding these little pieces of eggshell, like as he's finding them, he's like, oh, this is going to be such a nightmare to put back together. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I wouldn't call it a nightmare, but it, it, it has been difficult. And you're exactly right with egg material. And you've talked on this before and- there is a presentation SVP that Will gave for Verachio, but with egg material, we're trying to get every piece of data we can. So when we look at it, even if we find a piece concave up or concave down, the overall shape of it, that's important too, even if it's not with anything else, because we can use that to try and figure out what happened to the nest. And then more recently, actually, we had a paper talking about 
colors with eggs. And from that, we can also have amazing ramifications as far as what conclusions we can now draw. For example, if an egg is not colored, if it's basically just plain white, then it was most likely buried. Many times we see that. Hmm. If an egg's buried, you won't actually see colorations. If it's colored, it probably was not buried, for example. So on that, we have an additional data point to try and see whether these were buried or not buried. And that going forward, we can then use to test prior hypotheses. So we could look at, say, our sauropod eggs, colored or not. Would that confirm that they were buried? And from those two points, there's now another ramification as far as were they taking good care of their young? Were they just leaving? And so forth, so fifth. That when we look at this, and like alligators, for example, when they go to take care of their young, for the most part, they're buried, but they still come back and check it periodically hmm. versus other animals that, you know, they bury them, almost leave, if you will. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is the idea that if it had color to it, that would be like a camouflage? It, it very well could be based on the, some of the colorations. It's difficult to say because we found colors that wouldn't exactly blend in. And you see that with some modern birds where the eggs definitely do not blend in. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to say what that might be. Is it so that the parents very clearly know where it is? It's difficult to say, but possibly. Yeah. So there's a lot of insights, obviously, you can get looking at eggs and learning about the behavior and things like that. But overall, what's the importance of studying fossilized eggs and reproduction in general? So at least most recently, one of the huge ramifications has been looking at it compared to avians, that the eggs and basically the dinosaur reproduction, it's been a huge point to show us as dinosaurs evolved into the modern birds that we see, it shows us sort of that transition, which has been phenomenal. The other big part of working with eggs is going all the way back to the original discovery with, say, Myasaura. It allowed us to reevaluate reptiles as a whole, modern reptiles, because pr prior to the find that Myasaur is taking care of its young, reptiles as a group were just considered these big lumbering animals that did not really care for their young. So when they found these dinosaurs that previously were thought not to care for their young, thought to almost being different on the matter, and now here clearly they're caring for their young, it actually caused modern biologists to go back and look at modern day animals, for example, alligators, crocodiles, what have you. So there's some huge ramifications when we look at it in the modern world as well. Hmm. The interesting thing as well for myself is looking at this from a paleoecologic perspective, which is truly what I try to get at. When we look at the eggs, it allows us to, again, see the environment. If we have multiple nests, especially if we have them coming back to the same place and they continue to nest there year after year after year, it shows that in their mind it's successful. And clearly, if we have that over enough generations, it is a truly successful nesting ground, regardless of how many eggs we find. Yeah. Were you saying that the one that you just published on and where Sabrina found her eggshell and all that, was that that's like several layers of nest, you think, too, right? Oh, I. it's hard to say. It's really hard to say because we're right now, frankly, overwhelmed with the amount of eggs that we're finding. <laughs> But it seems like as we're getting lower, we may have more eggs down there. Oftentimes, when you find a number of eggs, and we're probably in excess of 20 at this point when we include what's unprepped, when we look at that, when you start to get in those numbers, you almost certainly are going to continue to find more. So when you look at, say, what's occurring in China, when they find 20 eggs in many times there, they end up finding more like 40. We see the same thing with some of the sauropod nesting grounds in Argentina there were just this massive amount of eggs. And then Egg Mountain Proper, Egg Island, we're finding lots and lots of eggs from those locations. 
So with this site, we very well could have something similar to that. I'd say it's a little early to say, but it, it's entirely possible for that to be the case. Cool. So now that people know the kinds of things that you've been finding and the ex- mm-hmm. how exciting it is and also the importance of this kind of work, if people wanted to help contribute, what's a, a good way for them to get involved? So they could, the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center, I would encourage them to go look at the website there. From there, they can actually register for a dig if they want to come out, possibly work on the site itself. Obviously, there's no guarantees that will be the, the site they work on. There's many sites that the museum there is working on and actively digging. But that is one of the sites which currently we are working on. So look at the website. And then as far as just updates on the research, looking at some of the pictures from the site. And then I also we put out a great video showing one of our CT scans of these eggs. That's all on the museum's Facebook page. So that's probably one of the best sources for just uh, your basic images. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And then I have to ask, I don't know if you're involved yes. with this at all, but how is your Amphicelius build, or also known as Marapunisaurus, going? <laughs> Depending on who you ask, yes. I am not directly involved in that. I've been focused on the research more, but it seems like it's been it's good headway. It's it's nearly done completely, nice. which is which is pretty incredible. And then for you personally, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and your work, where can they go? You can find me on ResearchGate, and then periodically I can also be found on the Fossil Forum. Those are the two places that you can find me online. I don't know if I've ever been on the Fossil Forum. What is that? Uh, it's mostly amateurs, but it's it's a decent website. You can go there. A lot of times it's people looking for identifications, but sort of a celebration of all things fossil. There's some good conversations that I've had with there with amateurs, and there's a couple others who are on there that from the professional field, but mostly amateurs. Many times it's been shunned by the professional community just because most people there are buying or selling fossils often, but I don't mind it. I like having discussions with people. I can talk about dinosaurs all day, <laughs> but yeah, it's the fossilforum.com. Cool. I'll have cool. to check that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, those are probably the two best ways to find me. I'm not very active on social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, you've got a bunch of other stuff going on. <laughs> I do, I do. That, that's that, it's funny you've heard, you've heard about it before, but basically everyone in the field right now is incredibly busy. It's a good kind of busy, mm-hmm. but it, it's been incredibly busy because right now we are at least for dinosaurs we're we're in a phenomenal time. It's never been this phenomenal mm-hmm. from a research perspective. It, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great as yeah, an enthusiast too to see what you guys <laughs> come up with. <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. Although it's difficult almost to keep up with all the papers. Oh, yeah. But yeah. yes, there, there's much more in the works. And I'm really excited about what the next couple of years are going to hold because the, the trend has been phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And we're really starting to get at all this information. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for having me again. Thanks, Eric, so much for chatting with us. There's definitely a lot that we can learn from dinosaur eggs. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Dromeciomimus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was an ornithomimid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada, and the type species is Dromeciomimus brevitertius. It looked like an ostrich, though didn't have as many feathers. Maybe it had some feathers. It was about 11 and a half or 3.5 meters long and weighed about 220 pounds or 100 kilograms. It had large eyes and long forelimbs and a beak and wide toothless jaws. Dromeciomimus was an omnivore, 
may have eaten plants, insects, possibly some small animals like lizards or mammals, and it could move fast. One study found that Dromesiomimus may have been faster than its relatives Ornithomimus and Struthiomimus. It may have been able to run up to 45 to 50 miles per hour or 72 to 80 kilometers per hour. Wow. It's much faster than I can run. <laughs> it was found in 1926 by William Parks and originally described as Struthiomimus. It was found in the Horseshoe Canyon Formation. And then in 1972, it was named Dromesiomimus by Dale Russell. The name means emu mimic. The scientific name for emu is Dromesius. Oh, that's funny. And we're getting more specific than like bird mimic or ostrich mimic. Mm-hmm. We're switching over to emu mimic. Yep. <laughs> They're also big and fast. <laughs> so Russell also synonymized Struthiomimus ingens with Dromesiomimus samuli. And then in 1981, Nichols and Russell said that Dromesiomimus may not be a valid genus, though they thought that the limb proportions were different enough to keep it distinct from Ornithomimus. McAvicky and others found that there was not a distinction between the two and synonymized Dromesiomimus with Ornithomimus edmontonicus. But not everybody agreed. In 2018, Ian McDonald and Phil Curry found that the ratio of the tibia and femur of one Dromesiomimus specimen, which was found in 1967, was different from Ornithomimus edmontonicus. Interesting. So we got a whole herd of different types of fast-running dinosaurs, potentially. Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day is that the great spotted kiwi bird lays one of the largest eggs of any modern dinosaur, despite weighing only about three kilograms or seven pounds. And yes, it's a bird. I'm just being clever when I say modern dinosaur. Hmm. <laughs> so a kiwi egg weighs about 25% of its body. So <laughs> that's so much. Yes, it's an insane proportion. The Autobahn says, quote, proportionally, this is by far the largest of any bird in the world. Imagine a chicken laying a one pound egg or more graphically, a human giving birth to a fully formed four year old. Oh, my gosh. Do you think that's why <laughs> kiwi birds don't fly? The eggs. There's well, no point with those giant eggs. I don't think that's why, <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely would make things difficult. I don't know if they could fly while having that egg. Apparently, it's hard for them to even get around, and the females just kind of stay in like a burrow and don't move around that much. They'll like come outside and dip their tummy sort of in water to sort of like soothe it a little bit. That and makes sense. They're it's basically on bed rest. Yes, exactly. The bird version of bed rest, like nest rest or something. <laughs> so... For comparison, a normal proportion of body weight for an egg to be is more like 4%. So at 25%, that's just crazy. Kiwis are ratites, which is maybe why they're flightless. They're like ostriches and emus. And ostriches lay the largest eggs of any bird, but ostrich eggs are actually the smallest relative to their body size. Lucky ostriches. Yeah, and there is one theory that maybe... Kiwis evolved from ostriches or some similar animal, and as they shrunk, their egg just didn't shrink as quickly, and that's how they ended up with such massive eggs. But there have been other recent analysis that found them more closely related to flying birds elsewhere, so that might not really work out. Another weird thing, though, kiwis actually have two ovaries. We've talked before about how most birds just have the one ovary. I didn't realize any had two, but still, they can obviously only lay one egg at a time because it takes up 25% of their body mass. <laughs> they can't bump that up to 50% and stay alive. The egg fills 
pretty much their entire body. There are a lot of x-ray pictures of these, and there's also sometimes skeletal reconstructions in museums, and they'll kind of show where the egg is in the body. It kind of squishes the lungs and all of the other organs way to the front of the body, and then the whole back, like two-thirds of the abdomen, is just full of this massive egg. Weirdly, as soon as the egg hatches, the parents take off, put all this effort into making this enormous egg and waiting around for it and then just ditch it. Done. Yep. That's all the effort they needed. <laughs> yeah. I. That's exactly how I think of it. I think of it as like the Kiwis are sort of getting all of their parenting done up front. So they basically spend all this time and energy into making this massive egg. They stay with the egg for nearly three months. It takes like over 70 days to develop and lay the egg. And then once it hatches, the chick has enough yolk left over to go for weeks on the nutrition of that yolk. So they don't really need the parents around to feed it because it's like this egg was so massive. It had all these nutrients that it can still absorb some. You say nearly three months and I think, oh, only three months for 25% of its body weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... It's a long time for a bird yeah. is why I say nearly three months. And especially something that small too. There's gestation periods on these small animals tend to be a lot quicker. But yeah, so the chicken basically take care of itself as soon as it's hatched. And then the parents, there's no reason for them to stick around. Well then. <laughs> Good for the kiwis, I guess. Sort of. <laughs> it's definitely different. Yeah. It also made me wonder, some of these massive dinosaur eggs that we've seen, like for example, some of the oviraptors that have these huge eggs and you'd think, oh, that must be a sauropod or some really big dinosaur, but it turns out to be one of the smaller dinosaurs. Maybe, I wonder if they were doing the same kind of thing. They had a whole nest of them too. Poor small dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. But there's definitely more than one approach to taking care of eggs than sit on the nest, then feed the birds for a while and then raise them and then they fly off out of the nest Sometimes you just lay them and take off. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, join us on Patreon where you can join in on our conversations on the Discord and, you know, help uh, make Garrett do some more work so that our videos are better. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's at patreon.com slash I Know Dino or also on social media. You can find us basically by searching I Know Dino or Dinosaur Podcast. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.